So back in May of 2014, I saw a headline and it read like this. Indian court asked to rule on whether Hindu guru is dead or meditating. And I thought, okay, I got to read this. So here's the story. The family and followers of one of India's wealthiest Hindu spiritual leaders are fighting a legal battle over whether he is dead or simply in a deep state of meditation. His Holiness, this is his name, Sri Ashutosh Maharaj, the founder of a real long name religion, uh, with a property estate worth an estimated 100 million pounds, died in January, according to his wife and son. So the article is being written in May of 2014, so it means he's already been dead for uh, four months. It says, however, his disciples at his ashram have refused to let the family take his body for cremation because they claim he is still alive. Now, you need to know this, too. The uh, disciples of his church are the ones that are controlling that money. All right. (laughs) So according to his followers, he simply went into a deep meditation and they have frozen his body to preserve it for when he wakes up. His body is currently contained in a commercial freezer. So that means his family is saying, hey, he's dead and he's in a freezer, right? But the disciples are saying this, and I quote, he spent time in the cold Himalayas learning how to enter deep meditation under extreme conditions. Okay, a little follow-up. Three years later, I found another article that uh, the courts actually ruled in favor of the church, of the religious disciples. And so as far as I know, it's been six and a half years that they've still uh, been been keeping hold of his body uh, and uh, the money. So let me ask you a question. Who do you worship? Who do you follow? In whom do you place your trust? Let me ask you another question. Is he dead or is he alive? I ask that because a long time ago, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Today's message is called American Idol. And it has to do with a day when the Apostle Paul arrived in a place called Athens. And there they worshipped a myriad of idols, tons and tons of statues and idols. Our three points today are going to be artificial, authentic, and answer. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can be turning to the book of Acts, chapter 17. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow along because I'll I'll have the verses up here in, in the presentation. But again, our message today is called American Idol. And our three points are artificial, authentic, and answer. So let's pray together. Let's see what God has for us. Dear Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord. You are an awesome God. In fact, you are the true and living God. Lord, I pray that as we go through this message today, that you would clarify to us what it means to worship the almighty God of the universe versus what it means To be in idolatry. Lord I pray you'd open our eyes. Lord there's there's habits we fall into. And there's beliefs we fall into. And we don't even realize sometimes. 
that we're believing things that are untrue about you. So I pray, God, you would open all of our eyes. Lord, I pray if there is any idolatry, that you would break us uh, from that and free us, Lord, to worship you and you alone. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so our first point today is artificial. And first I want to read some synonyms for the word artificial. Uh, The words counterfeit, fake, phony, bogus. All those words kind of uh, encapsulate the idea of what it means to be artificial. And we start with this idea of artificiality because, like I said earlier, the Apostle Paul arrives in a place called Athens and he notices quickly that the city is filled with artificial gods. So we begin in Acts 17, verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Okay, well, let's take a closer look at that. Verse 16 mentions this, that Athens, uh, the city, was full of idols. In fact, historians uh, from those days wrote this about Athens, that there were more idols in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together. Now, what did Paul do about this? Well, verse 17 tells you that says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. So in this city, with all those statues that these people worship, He picked a starting point and where he began was in the synagogue with the Jewish people, the people who were already in the building. But watch this, y'all. They also had a history. They knew the Old Testament. They were aware of it, at least. And so they knew the predictions that had been written about Jesus. So he began there with them and he could tell them about Jesus and tell them that that, hey, you know, that prophecy about how the Savior is supposed to come, the Messiah is supposed to come and be born in Bethlehem. He's actually been born. So that was his starting point. But then he didn't stop there. Notice also in verse 17, it says this, that he would leave the synagogue and it says he also would go to the marketplace and he would speak there to those who happened to be there. Now, let's think about a little application. That means this. There's some people that we know that you can invite to church and they feel comfortable coming to church and attending and and hearing it out, whether they're a believer or not. But we also know people, we all know people who are not comfortable maybe coming to this building. And so then we have to be creative. If we're going to be like the Apostle Paul and be able to share uh, what Christ means to us with those folks, um, then we need to invite them to maybe a neutral spot, like maybe a coffee shop or a restaurant or a sporting event. Or maybe even your own home. And the Apostle Paul was willing to do that. Uh, If we put our ears before our mouths. If we listen to people. What we'll find. We'll find out they'll tell us sometimes. The reason why they're unwilling to come to church. Maybe they've had an experience. Where they got stung. And they're just unable to go back. Like, Like going into a religious building. Reminds them too much of that pain. Or maybe they have misconceptions. About Christ. And if you'll meet them in a neutral spot, sometimes you get to talk through those misconceptions. So uh, when you're with someone like that, how do you begin? There's a simple way. You can just ask them a simple question. What's your story? And just let them tell you their story and see where the conversation goes, right? That's in God's hands. 
We go on in verse 18. It says this. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. We'll talk about that in a second. But some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, so let's talk about those two groups. It mentions the Epicureans. Uh, these were people who were self-indulgent. They were just the party people. And so if they had a motto in life, it would be, if it feels good, do it. Okay. The Stoics were people who considered themselves either equal or even, uh, even above God. And so if they had a motto, it would sound like something like, hey, I'm okay, you're not. And this was Paul's crowd. This was the audience to which God brought him to uh, to share Christ. Um, and quickly they formed different opinions about him. You'll see that in verse 18. Uh, some of them start calling him a babbler. Now think about that. Because you and I know about the Apostle Paul, right? Or, or a lot of us do. But, I mean, he's the guy that God used to write two-thirds of the letters in the New Testament. And here these people had no clue who he was. And so they dismiss him as a babbler. There were others who said this. He's a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he preached two things. He preached about Jesus. And he preached about the resurrection. So think about it from their perspective. Okay. They live in this city. And it's filled with all these statues and idols that they worship. And so when Paul came to preach to them. And he preached about two things. They instantly assumed he was talking about two new gods. And so the first one was this guy named Jesus. And they thought, well, he must be some kind of God. And then they heard about this word resurrection. And they thought, well, there must be some kind of God of resurrection. Now, if you think of it from Paul's perspective, think about some of the things he was teaching when he taught about Jesus and the resurrection. Speaking of Jesus... Surely he would have taught them that Jesus is almighty God and he became flesh and dwelt among us. He was 100 percent man and he was 100 percent God. Paul would also tell him that Jesus is not just a way to God, but he would tell him that Jesus said he was the way, the truth and the life. And he would also tell them about the cross, that Jesus life ended on a cross where he died for our sins. But you know what? The story doesn't end there, does it? He also talked about resurrection. And when he talked about resurrection, again, surely he told them that Jesus Christ, after being in the tomb a couple of days, he came out of that tomb alive and actually rose from the dead on the third day. And beyond that, talking about resurrection, he would teach these people that there is hope Beyond what we see in this world. And definitely hope beyond these statues that surrounded them. So we go on now in verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 19. It says, and they took him, meaning Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time, watch this, in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All right, so let's back up a second, okay? Verse 19, so the Areopagus, what was that? Okay, uh, another word for it is Mars Hill, named after the Roman god of war. 
And in this location, the Areopagus, what would happen is they would come and have their most important discussions. It was here where they would uh, listen to people. And if someone denied one of their gods, uh, they could censor that person or worse. It was also in this place where they would decide if they were going to add any new idols or gods. Like, hey, this guy makes the cut and this one doesn't. You may not know this, but about 450 years prior to Paul being here, this is the actual place where they didn't like what Socrates was saying about their idols. And Socrates wasn't even a Christian. But here he was uh, telling them things that they didn't like. And so they decided that Socrates himself should be put to death. That's the location where Paul was now, in front of that audience, in that spot. Now, it tells you this uh, in verse 20. We just read this. It says, you bring strange things to our ears. And then it says this in verse 21. They spent time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, I want you to think about modern days. I'm going to read that again. They spent time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. (laughs) I'm going to offend somebody right now. But... Does this not remind anybody of social media? I mean, I'm just asking, okay? I'm just asking, right? Can I gently encourage everybody in this room? Just gently encourage you. Be careful what you read, what you believe, and what you pass on. Okay? Just be careful. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive... That in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. All right, so verse 22, he tells them this In every way you are very religious. Do you know what Paul was doing there? He was seeking common ground. Uh, He could have very easily said, man, you guys are nuts worshiping all these statues. He could have easily said that and it would have instantly closed off his audience. But instead, he sought common ground. And so he said, you know what I perceive? You guys are really religious. And it made them want to hear what else he might have to say. Uh, The other day I was meeting with a friend of mine, uh, Shane O'Hara. A bunch of y'all know him. He's one of the missionaries that we support. And I worked with him for 20 years uh, in student ministry. But um, I hope that's one of ours. Okay. But uh, (laughs) who said that? But anyway, uh, but Shane and I were visiting for lunch. And we were talking about, you know, how, uh, you know, trying to gain an audience with people if we want to talk to people about Christ. And this is what Shane said. And it made a lot of sense. He said, I want to do everything I can to keep the doors open for communication, regardless of who is sitting in front of me. Watch this, y'all. He said, I want to be able to talk to straight people about Christ. But I also want to be able to talk to gay people about Christ. I want to be able to talk to white people as well as black. I want to be able to talk to legal immigrants as well as illegal immigrants about Christ. I want to be able to talk to Republicans as well as Democrats. I want to be able to talk to Protestants 
as well as Catholics. You know that last that last category? Uh, it raises the question, well, why would you want to talk to people who are already in church about Christ, Protestants and Catholics? Well, in case you don't know this, on any given Sunday in every church around here, there are people who attend who are believers and understand fully what Christ has done for them. But there's also people who don't yet understand whether they have misconceptions or um, just for whatever reason. And so Shane, uh, in his mindset, wants to keep the door open to be able to talk to anybody, anybody, anybody about Christ. And that's what Paul was doing here, keeping that common ground. So he sees this inscription on this altar and he thinks there's the opportunity. The inscription read like this to the unknown God. And Paul says, that's who I want to proclaim to you. Uh, Paul was very perceptive. And so he kept his eyes open. Right. I mean, imagine we already talked about this, you know, the two groups and these Epicureans and these Stoics that he was talking to. And then he's in this uh, Areopagus place where, where, you know, awful things have happened. And yet, rather than be intimidated, he kept praying. He kept his eyes open. And then he saw the opportunity. And he actually used their own words to his advantage. And he tells them this inscription here that says to the unknown God, that's the one I want to proclaim to you. Uh, There's two approaches you can use when you want to talk to people about Christ or to talk to them about the object of their faith. One way, like I said, is to tell them, hey, you're wrong. You're out of your mind. And instantly that'll close the door. Another way is to say something like, you know, I used to believe the same thing or something close to what you believe. But then I had a heart change. Can I tell you about that? And you'll find more often than not, it will open the door for communication. Now, let me ask you a question. Does anybody remember Russell Erksleben? Does anybody remember that name, Russell Erksleben? I want you to see this picture, see if it brings uh, brings anything to mind. Back in 1979, um, the Saints were coming off a season, New Orleans Saints, where they had won the most games they'd ever won. They won five games one season, right? And so now when the draft came around, uh, during the first round of the draft, they had a chance to pick somebody. They had, actually had the 11th pick. And the leadership of the New Orleans Saints decided the wisest thing to do was to choose this guy, Russell Erksleben. And he was going to play a dual role. He was going to be the Saints kicker and the Saints punter. Well, instantly, fans of the Saints thought, what are they thinking? We've got so many issues on offense, so many issues on defense. Why are we going to choose a guy first round who's going to be a kicker and a punter? Now, uh, one of the rumors that, that went out pretty quickly was that he was being paid a million dollars. He got a million dollar contract. And that rumor actually was not true, but we've already talked about how rumors go, right? So, but here's what happened is, so people just had this attitude and he was never going to live up to the hype. So sure enough, what happens opening game of the season uh, was a home game and who comes to town, but the hated Atlanta Falcons. And like a lot of times, what happened was it was a close game. It went back and forth. By the end of the game, it's tied 34-34. Well, now they're in overtime. And halfway through overtime, we had to punt. And so in comes our hero, Russell Erksleben. Poor guy. Uh, he calls for the ball. And the ball sails over his head. 
So he goes running back, picks up the ball around the goal line, totally panics and throws it from his chest forwards about five yards into the hands of the Atlanta Falcons. Touchdown Falcons, Saints lose opening season. Saints fans instantly, their hopes were crushed. And the Saints leadership, their coaches and management realized maybe we put our hopes in the wrong guy. I want to ask you a question. Who do you worship? Who do you follow? In whom do you place your trust? Brings us to our second point today, y'all. Second word is authentic. Let me read you some synonyms for the word authentic. It's actually the opposite of our first word, uh, whatever that was. <laughs> I'm sorry. Memory issues. Artificial. Thank you so much. Okay. But our second word today is authentic. And the synonyms are this. Real. The real thing. True. Valid. At this point, the Apostle Paul begins to declare the true God, the authentic God to these Athenians. And uh, let me say this before we, we, we get into these verses. It's a beautiful passage. It's actually eight verses in a row where Paul describes what Almighty God is like and also what he has done on our behalf. So I want to read the entire passage uh, just in one reading. So we start at Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All right. Wow, that's just powerful. I want to encourage everybody, uh, if you can, you know, take the time and try to memorize those eight verses. Uh, I've never done it, but, you know, you figure Marcus has. All right, now, but let's take this in bite-sized pieces, okay? So, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So, right off, the Apostle Paul starts with this idea. Almighty God is creator. He is omnipresent, which means he is absolutely everywhere, and he is not bounded By time or by space. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation. I'm going to read that again. And he made from one man every nation. You know the more that scientists discover about DNA and about chromosomes. 
the more that science actually supports what God has been saying all along. Verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Boy, I love that. If anyone is in this room today or, or listening online and you feel like, like God is missing in your life, you know what? He's not very far from you. In fact, if you think about it, he's just one prayer away. You can always talk to God. God wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to be known. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Remember where he's standing and all those statues surrounding him. Okay, and he says he's not like gold or silver or stone. This is something that the Bible makes really clear. Uh, So let me kind of camp out on this thought. God is not a man-made statue. God does not inhabit a little golden cross that you might be wearing around your neck. Okay, jewelry is fine. I'm not down on jewelry, but I'm just saying that if you have a little gold cross, it's nothing more than a symbol. And God doesn't inhabit that little cross. God is not limited to a religious pin or to a luck charm or to your grandpa's World War II medal. Uh, Or a ladybug or a horseshoe or a dragonfly or a Chinese dragon or a piece of crystal or a rabbit's foot or a four leaf clover or your lucky stars or crossing your fingers. Do you know when we worship God, what we were doing a little while ago when we were singing, even what I'm doing now as I speak about God, when we worship God, ladies and gentlemen, when we worship God, we magnify him. And we speak of how great he is and how there is nothing and no one else like him. That's what worship is to exalt almighty God. When we put our trust in anything less, we actually do the opposite of worship. We actually bring God down. Um, And it's actually a form of idolatry. Now, um, you remember there's Ten Commandments, right? Well, the first two are very clear about this. And what we're about to read here comes from Exodus chapter 20. If you ever want to find the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, and start reading right there. Okay, Ten Commandments, you go to Exodus 20. All right. But we're going to read the first two commandments. So we begin in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, where again, God is crystal clear about what he believes about idolatry. And listen, what I'm about to read here is the same, whether it's the Protestant Bible or the Catholic Bible. It's exactly the same. So I want you to listen very carefully. Verse 2 in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of Anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That pretty much covers everything, right? He goes on and he says this, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God wants us to worship him. He wants us to worship him alone. 
plus nothing else. And think about it, y'all. Anytime you add that little thing, you know, even if it's just, I'm just going to knock on wood. I mean, and if you say you believe God, do you realize what you're saying is all I need is God and this little piece of wood. Do you understand? It brings God down. He wants to be worshiped and he wants to be worshiped just him and him alone. And he, in fact, is the only one, the only being in the entire universe and beyond that is worthy of our worship. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So let's break this down a little bit, because up until now, Paul has just been talking about God and the attributes of God. But at this point in these last couple of verses of that eight verse section, in these last couple of verses here, the apostle Paul begins to, to bring about some application. Like, like in other words, there's, you know, if this is true, what I've just said about God, then, then there's some ramifications or some consequences associated with that. Here's the thing. When you and I talk to people about God, I'm talking about just anybody, just about anybody these days uh, will mostly just kind of smile. And, you know, when you hear good things about God, how sweet he is, how he loves us, people just nod their head and they're OK with that part. But I'm going to tell you the moment in, in case you hadn't experienced this. Right. The moment you start talking about judgment, about uh, one who died on a bloody cross, it starts to make people uneasy. And sometimes it offends people. But you know what? Honestly, flip side is this. Is that people cannot come to a saving knowledge of the truth of God. People cannot come to a saving knowledge of Christ unless they understand the bad news. If someone doesn't realize that there's that first of all, and be able to admit that they're a sinner and that that sin is offensive to God so much that he promises, y'all, and God always keeps his promise. He promises that a judgment is coming. And that is why the good news is so good. Because this judgment is coming where God's wrath is finally going to come down. And yet the good news is he has sent a savior But understand, he has only sent one Savior. And he's made it very clear who that Savior is. Verse 30, Paul says, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent, the idea of repent means to change. So it begs a question, what are we changing from? And what are we changing to? What are we talking about here? Well, it includes these things. If you've been trusting in your works... You would stop trusting in your works and you would trust only in the Savior. Uh, If you're trusting in statues or any of those things that I put in that list, okay, you turn from that and you put your faith and trust in Christ alone. Let me ask again, because I've been asking this all morning. Who, in fact, do you really worship? Who do you worship? Who do you follow? In whom do you place your trust? Makes all the difference. Verse 31. 
He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Whenever God talks about judgment in the Bible, this is important, y'all. Whenever God talks about judgment, understand if that's the way God says it, that means you and I fall into one group or the other, and there is no middle group. But also he talks about only two destinations, not three. He talks about two. He talks about heaven, and he talks about a lake of fire. Nothing in between. He talks about being with him for eternity, and the alternative is not being with him. For all eternity. Now how will he judge the world? Verse 31 says this. By a man whom he has appointed. If you hadn't figured that out yet. He's talking about Jesus. Okay. By a man whom he has appointed. And he's given assurance how? By raising him from the dead. You realize. Worldwide. That alone should tell you. Well one rose from the dead. We started today talking about a guy who's in a freezer, okay? Don't think he's coming back anytime soon, okay? But Jesus Christ came back just like he said he would. So let me summarize Paul's message here to the Athenians. He gives them bad news and he gives them good news. And so the bad news is that all of us, y'all, all of us are sinners. And there's a consequence to that. That God is offended by our sin. There is a judgment coming. And that's why the good news is so good, because God has sent a savior. That savior died on the cross for our sins, for the very thing that separates us from God. He died for our sins and he rose again from the dead. And the reason he's called the savior is because he's the one that has the credentials. He is the one that can save us when we place our faith in him, faith in him and him alone. And again, that's why he's called the savior. And there is no other way. In 1985, uh, two events happened that seemed like they would have no connection at all. But for me, they're forever connected. In 1985, the Coca-Cola company took their main product off the market. A bunch of y'all remember when that happened. And so what happened was they removed Coca-Cola. And as soon as they said they were going to do that, people went to the store, I mean, to the stores and shops and groceries and they hoarded Coke and they bought all the Coke, I mean, Coca-Cola off the shelves. And after that, the only thing, if you wanted a Coke and you went to a store, the only thing you could buy was new Coke, which tasted nasty, right? But Coca-Cola was gone. 1985, that same summer, I went on my first mission trip with some teenagers um, I only took four kids, but we were part of a larger group. There was 200 of us all together. We went to the Dominican Republic and we split up into four groups uh, of about 50. And so our group was on site uh, at this one place in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, and we were building a church. Now, if we wanted to drink, our choice was purified water. And there was a little store right next to the church we were building and they had soft drinks, you know, stuff like Fanta, stuff like that. Well, with these 50 kids over a couple of days, um, they bought that store out. And so that store ran out of soft drinks. So now all we had was water and some of the kids wanted soft drinks. So I was given the task, me and, uh, and one other chaperone to get in the van and to go find soft drinks for the group. When we're driving along in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, we saw something that just blessed my soul. <laughs> It would have been nice just to find a Coca-Cola machine, y'all. We would have been happy with that. I'm telling you, we would have 
Praise God. Okay. But better than that. I'm not kidding. We found a Coca-Cola factory. So we look at each other and we're like, why not? So we drive up to the gate and I make friends with this, uh, with my amigo, you know, and uh, we, we talk a little Espanol. Next thing you know, we're getting a tour, a guided tour through this Coca-Cola factory. And so he shows us the assembly line and this conveyor belt where, where it had these glass bottles and where steaming hot water was shot up into the bottles, um, you know, to sterilize the bottles. At the next station, those bottles, uh, air was blown into them to dry them out. Then the machines would flip the bottles over and the very next station, ice cold Coca-Cola was shot into those bottles. Now, how do I know they were ice cold? Because my amigo reached over and grabbed one of those bottles and put it in my hand. Do you understand, y'all, in the summer of 1985, if you were in America, you couldn't find a Coca-Cola in the stores. You had to buy it from somebody who would auction it to you, right? But I found myself in the Dominican Republic holding a bottle of the real thing. Now, let me ask you, you see where this is going, right? Who do you worship? Who do you follow? In whom do you place your trust? Are you sure it's the real thing? Our third point today is answer. And here's the idea. God's word always, always elicits a response. And Paul's audience, as they heard him out, they responded in three different ways. So we're going to read that now. Verse 32 says this. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. So there's your three groups. The first group mocked. Okay. And you know, sometimes when you share your relationship with Christ with someone, sometimes they just find it funny. And you know what? Honestly, sometimes they just find it funny the first time. And later on, God can still get a hold of them. I mean, that's part of my story. I made fun first time I heard about it. The second group, they wanted to process. So they said, we're interested But we want more time. So we want to hear you again. And some people are like that. They just need more time to think about it. But the third group, y'all, it says that they joined him and they believed. It's always the case. God's word always elicits a response. And it's either going to be no. Or I need more time. Or yes. Here's an important principle. You don't ever want to make that decision for somebody else. You don't ever want to decide in your head what's going on in their head and heart. You want to let God handle that. You don't want to decide ahead of time. They're not interested. What you want to do is pray for the opportunity and then just start the conversation. See where it goes. And then you share as much as they're willing to hear. Because you don't know only God knows what's going on inside. And once you've told them, the rest is in his hands. Only God can produce faith in their hearts. That brings us to our application. So first part of our application is this. The question I've been asking all morning. Who do you worship? Who do you follow? In whom do you place your hope and trust? And I want to add a question. And it's this. 
What difference is your faith making in the lives of those around you? Now take some time to think about that and then I'm going to pray for you. Dear Lord, I thank you that you really are the almighty God. You're the only one we should worship. You and none other. We should worship you and love you wholeheartedly, Lord. Lord, I pray just for anyone today, maybe this message became clear to them. I pray, Father, you would give them the faith to trust the Lord Jesus. He would save them even now. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, that we would grow in our faith, God, you would fill us with your spirit. You would open our eyes to the opportunities, just like Paul did. I pray you'd open our eyes to the opportunity to point people to you. And Lord, it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.